If you have a Bible, you can open up to Matthew chapter 14. Uh, The last three weeks, we looked at a huge chunk of scripture, chapter 11, 12, and 13, and presented it from three different angles. And now we're looking more just an isolated uh, portion of uh, text here this morning as we'll tackle 14, 1 through 12. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love, your kindness, and just the generosity that you've bestowed upon us, that you've welcomed us into your family and that you have made us new in Christ. And there's this abundant life that we walk in, enjoy, and get to participate in as your followers. God, may we embrace that, enjoy that, and really during this time, receive from you what you have for us. May we have moments where we look at our own hearts and lives Consider how you might want to move, change, stir, and be ready to acknowledge areas that growth can happen. May there be encouragement in what you're doing already in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, in Matthew, up to this point, we've been really, as Matthew has done so brilliantly, telling the story of Jesus. And we're at a portion of scripture where Because it's a little bit disconnected, we're like seven months into Matthew at this point, six months. We started back in December into Matthew at this point. But the drama is truly pulsating at this moment in Matthew chapter 14. We sort of hit this hinge in which a lot of things are about to change. And now the drama is Jesus. He's sort of a problem for a lot of people. And here's what I mean. First and foremost, John the Baptist, who really many would consider is this prophet and kind of the last of his kind of prophet, this prophet before the Messiah is crucified and resurrected. He's been beheaded. They didn't like him. Matthew's account is now going to continue to reveal more Jewish people wanting their perceived version of the Messiah, what they think the Messiah should be doing, and who they think they want the Messiah to be, rather than who Jesus is and what Jesus is doing. And then just quite frankly, the religious elite, they're so over Jesus at this point. They're tired of him. They want to do away with him. They want him out of their sight. And this turning point begins to happen here in chapter 14 and moves into 15, where we're going to see the response Jesus gives of the Pharisees. It's going to be in a few weeks. Carson's actually going to teach on this text. Really excited for that. And Jesus pokes at the Pharisees. He then begins to expand the family of God, the invitation of the family of God, as he moves into a Gentile region, performs another feeding miracle, and talks with this Canaanite woman and heals her daughter. And it's this mostly Gentile group. And at this point, it's not good PR for Jesus. It's not. As a Jewish rabbi moving into Gentile territory, expanding his vision of the kingdom is a little rough. And what Jesus is showing, what Matthew is writing about, is this idea of Jesus is better than. And what I mean by that, we went through and spent a significant amount of time in the book of Genesis. If you were here with us, y'all remember Genesis 
And in Genesis, we talked a lot about Jesus being the better than Adam, Jesus being the better than Abraham, Jesus being the better than Isaac, the better than Jacob. And if you were to move into the Exodus story, he is the better than Moses. And then into the kings of Israel, he is the better than David. And what I mean by that is Jesus is fulfilling and bringing what none of those people could actually fully do. And Matthew does this in a literary style here at this moment. He's going to portray over the next few weeks for us, Jesus is better than Moses as Jesus has already delivered the Sermon on the Mount, which kind of correlates there with Moses on the Mount giving the Ten Commandments. In these stories that are to come, Jesus is going to feed the 5,000 and then move into a safe water passage narrative. If you are an ancient Israelite, your brain is firing off right now. Why? Well, Israel was fed in the wilderness miraculously. Israel miraculously passed through the water. Matthew is using this style of writing to show how he is better than. Now, check this out. As the story continues, there was a promise made to Abraham that he was blessed to be a blessing, that through his lineage... God was going to do something great and grand for the entire world. And I've got this picture in my mind. It's a bit like an hourglass. And in an hourglass, it starts out really, really wide. And this is God's intention and plans for humanity with Adam and Eve. And then Adam and Eve, they blow it in the garden narrative. And we're going to see some of the story play out even this morning as two lines, Seth and Cain, begin to be lived out. And the world is in chaos, disarray, and a mess. And what does God do? In Genesis 12, he calls Abraham. And he says, I'm going to work through your family, Abe. I'm going to make you a father of many nations. Israel would take this to their head over the course of history. And rather than participating in what should have been the expansion of the kingdom of God and inviting people in, they became an incredibly isolated type of people. They wanted, like Jonah, destruction of Nineveh. They wanted to wipe people out rather than being those that existed to display the glory of God and invite people in. Well, now in Jesus, he's the greater than Moses as Jesus is fulfilling that bottom half of the hourglass And he's calling all people unto him. Now, this is some ideas that we're going to flesh out over the next couple of weeks. But where it leaves us is slap down right in the middle of the tension of the kingdom. And what's interesting about this is there's two competing kingdoms going on. There's a Roman Empire kingdom that through force, domination, and fear, they are conquering people around them flexing their muscle, displaying their rule, building the Pax Romana system and the roads and everything else in efforts to create some sort of utopia to bring in peace. But it doesn't get completed. There's also a Jewish kingdom in which they're anticipating and excited for, but they have a version of it that they want lived out, and it has yet to be seen. And then there is this radical upside-down kingdom that Jesus is bringing in. Those first two kingdoms are kind of just in this abundance of kingdoms that always have existed. Systems and ways that people want to accomplish bringing in the peace that we so desperately crave and desire. 
And then you have Jesus bringing in something utterly different. Now, what's interesting is the story of the Bible can be viewed in this, as we've talked about a handful of times, and I'm just going to give a brief preface on this. Genesis discusses this in lineage. As he talks about Seth and Cain, Jude picks up on this, that short little letter right before Revelation, where he says, you've gone the way of Cain. The way of Cain was not the way of God, of Yahweh, but was his own way in which he wanted to live out his own life and his own desires, in a sense, just recreating the narrative of Adam and Eve again, wanting to step into the place of God rather than underneath of God. The lineage of Cain, or Seth is one that is then tracked through Noah and Abraham and on down the line okay, to, to Jesus eventually. These lineages can also be looked at like in Revelation, where you have systems, the system of the beast and the way of the world and the system or the way of the lamb that we're being graciously invited into to follow the way of Cain is to follow the way of the beast is to follow the systems and the way of the world. Whereas Revelation says to follow the way of the lamb is to follow the way of Jesus is to come into that lineage and that line. These two systems. Now, for us this morning, these two systems can be broken down even more simplistically. It's this. Fear of God, fear of man. Fear of God, fear of man. Okay? Essentially, the one who fears man goes the way of Cain. Participates in the world systems, in the way of the world where power is esteemed and valued, not given away, but taken Self-rule dominates. Desires go unchecked. And when desires go unchecked, there's a whole lot of bad stuff that comes out of it, isn't there? We're living out desires unchecked in our culture right now. The progression of sexuality that's taken place over the years is hitting full speed. And we're seeing a society that's so embraced and welcomed its ways. And now we're seeing its destruction and the brokenness that it has ushered into this world. These desires unchecked and people are given over to them are following the ways of the beast and what the beast has to offer as Revelation declares. Those who follow, those who fear God are like that of the line of Seth who believe in the upside down kingdom and live under the rule and the reign of Christ. His desires becoming our desires as we studied on the Sermon on the Mount of what that looks like being lived out. And this morning, we're gonna look at the fear of man through the lens of Herod. All right, so let's read this story to drink a water, and we'll look at verse 1 of chapter 14. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. That is some serious superstition going on there, right? This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod, here's the backstory, had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother's Philip's wife. It's a bad situation, friends, right? Herod, 
kind of got a little busy with his brother's wife, and now there's some rumors going around, and it's not looking good because John had been saying to him, it's not lawful for you to have her, though he wanted to put him to death. He feared the people. This is the second instance of Herod fearing because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias, it gets real creepy, danced before the company and pleased Herod. All right? This wasn't like a little luau and hula. This is probably Las Vegas style happening in Herod's party. So that he promised an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, why? Because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in prison. His head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother, and his disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. This is an absolutely messed up, jacked up story that we have for us here this morning. You have this man, Herod, and we don't know all that he did in his private life, but judging by his public life, this was not a good dude, okay? He was not participating in what we would call the ways of Jesus, applying even the Sermon on the Mount and his kingdom to his life. He was definitely living how he wanted to live. And in this, he found himself in a bit of trouble from time to time. Now, when you think about it, what drove Herod's decisions? People did. It says because he feared the people at first, he did not want to kill John. Though he had the power to do it, it was at his disposal at any moment. He could get rid of John, but he didn't want to because he feared people. Then it says he was sorry. Why? He was sorry to actually kill John. Why why would he be sorry about that? The shame of what other people might think? The fear that John has come back from the dead to haunt him? I mean, this guy in the third sense has this literal fear of a person that has come back to haunt him. And if I were to ask you, who made all these decisions? The scriptures are clear. You and I can deduct from just simply reading this that absolutely it was Herod But was it Herod? Think about it. Oh, yes, he gave the orders for the execution. But it was his fear of man that drove him to be controlled by these exterior factors, opinions, and thoughts of others. Why? Herod has a glory problem first and foremost. He's concerned for his glory. He shrunk his life down to the size of him. And the results of it is his world is the only world in which he can see. And so he's left to have to decide what is going to get the most applause, praise, and approval from other people. How can I approve the crowd in my party? How can I approve the woman in whose bed I'm sharing right now and her daughter's request? And ultimately, to do the right thing or to be liked was his only, only options. Now, before we fillet Herod, which is really easy to do, I want to talk a little bit about the fear of man and what I mean by it. First of all, when I say fear, I think this can get shot up on the screen for you. I mean it in this sense, in a term in the much broader sense. It includes being afraid of somebody, but it extends to holding someone in awe, 
being controlled or mastered by people, or worshiping other people, putting your trust in people, or needing people. Next. I'm sure you got all that. Next. When I say man, I mean man or woman, young or old. Okay? This is not just in a gender-specific sense. But you can fear men, you can fear women, you can fear children. It, it doesn't matter. There's a fantastic book by Ed Welch, When People Are Big and God Is Small. And I've somewhat condensed a lot of what he said over a few hundred pages into what we're going to be discussing this week and next week. And because time, maybe the following week, we'll see how that goes here this morning. <laughs> okay. But what I want us to see is I'm talking to two kinds of people here this morning. The first group... You are living, serving, playing in your own kingdom. And whether you want to acknowledge it or not, it is the kingdom of the beast. This is the group of people that maybe you happen to walk in here today. You don't know a whole lot about Jesus. You've been living for yourself. Maybe you've hit some lows, rock bottom, as some might describe it. Maybe you're just curious about Jesus. But you're somebody who's possibly, most likely, obsessed with with self, with power, with pride, desperately trying to cover shame and guilt, all of this in order to bring about inner peace, but you're utterly lost in the process. And somebody once said to you, Jesus is great. And you're like, maybe I'll come in here and check Jesus out. This is a position that all humans enter into. And unless Jesus moves in our heart and our lives, it's one in which we stay and remain in until submitting to him as king. Now, the second group will call us Christians, that we don't always act and live that out the ways we should. We're like those Israelites who in the Passover story have, so to speak, applied the blood of the lamb to the doorpost of their home, to our lives, the blood of Jesus. We've passed through the sea like the Israelites as they were parted. And even Paul in 2 Corinthians alludes back to the reality that through that was baptism, the symbolism of it. And you're in this wilderness where some days you just get it right. And it's awesome. And some days you just don't. Some days you look like complaining. I look like grumbling Israelites. When God has given us bread, we want meat. When Moses is on the mountain, we want an idol now so we can be satisfied. And we have these issues and problems. Though, nonetheless, I would call us a follower of Jesus. And we live in this tension in which fear of man can overshadow fear of God. Where do we start? Pete Scazzaro, great author, does a lot on emotionally healthy spirituality, discipleship, all these other things, says, know yourself that you may know God. Now, what? We're a Jesus-centered, all scriptures point to Jesus. The Bible is about Jesus. It's not about you. Absolutely. But let me just draw a few things to your mind here. Paul said in Ephesians 4.22 and 24, put off your old self. If you're going to put something off, you have to know what's on you. (laughs) Okay? (laughs) Let's just be clear on that. Like, if I'm going to take off my jacket, I know I got a jacket on me. If I'm going to put off my old self, there's something about my old self that I actually have to know, like who I am and what I'm about and what I'm living for. And then in verse 24, he says, put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So there's our baseline text for this. 
St. Augustine in his confessions wrote, how can you draw close to God when you are far from your own self? He prayed, Augustine did, grant Lord that I may know myself, that I may know thee. You don't like Augustine? Let me take you to Calvin, all right? Calvin says, our wisdom consists almost entirely of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. But as these are connected together by many ties, it is not easy to determine which of the two proceeds and gives birth to the other. So in a sense, what these are saying is there's an aspect in which if you're going to know God, you need to know yourself. Without really knowing yourself, we may never acknowledge our hurts, our needs, our wants, our desires, our fears. This admittance that we actually need this big grand God to move into our lives. So when I come to a place of knowing myself, in addition to that, I'm able to go, I know what I should be watching out for and the areas I'm capable of failing in, where I need to clearly invite God to increase in my life because I myself, like John the Baptist, who literally needed to decrease physically, yes, as Jesus comes on the scene, but so too figuratively, I need to decrease as he increases in my life. How well do you know you? Yikes. One of the best ways to know if you know you is if you came with a close friend, child, spouse. If I were to say, what do you fear? What would you write down? And if I were to ask them, what do they fear? Would you write down the exact same things? Right? People tend to see things in us that we cannot see within ourselves. And I'm curious if our answers would match. And I'm going to shoot straight with you personally in my life. It's when my wife has held up a mirror in my life and went, that was, that was pretty ugly, right? The way you responded in that situation. It's when a mentor or close friends that I've invited into my life can look in and say, Brett, you have these fears. We're not just talking some sin issue that's easy to call out because I'm actively participating in it, but you have these fears and we see these tendencies that come out of you when you get into these kinds of situations. It's those that are closest to us. Last night, the family together. We were eating pizza. It's Saturday night. It's just the easy way to do Saturday nights in my household. And we're catching up on some American Idol with the kids. And we wanted to show them how brutal Simon Cowell was compared to the new judges. So we, like, YouTube's fantastic for that. And my kids, uh, they were just appalled at how mean Simon Cowell is. Can't even say his last name to these kids. Well, they started singing a Queen song. And so I started, because I'm a Fun, funny dad, and I just started singing as well. And then I told my kids, um, if you don't know, I'm terrible at singing. And I know this about myself. And I tell my oldest, she's 10, she still thinks I'm her hero, which is super cool, but she's also like really smart and is willing to speak up now. And I'm singing, and I go, I'm gonna try out for American Idol. And the kids go, yeah, dad, yeah, dad. And then my oldest, Ava, goes, dad, you are a terrible singer. No, Ava, I'm great. I believe in myself. I should do this. She goes, Dad, you're really good at reading. You should just do that. <laughs> <I was> like, <laughs> you're 
you're going to embarrass yourself and our family. And I'm like, yep, that is very true, babe, all right? So I'm not going to actually do this. You see, some people don't have a loving 10-year-old to tell you you stink at singing. And they go on American Idol, and we all laugh at it, right? It happens. Simon pointed that out, and many people. That's kind of a light example. And it is true that you are who you are when you're all alone, So you're in your room and you whisper something harsh under your breath or anger comes out of you, something that you would never display in front of other people. And there's an aspect of that, but we're so quick to minimize and justify why we would actually do that. And it's very difficult for us to catch what we're participating in. And it's in community where we begin to see honesty from others speak into our lives and we can grow or change. Now, in America, we want community in terms of like laughter and friendship but we don't want vulnerability in realness. And somebody to actually say, hey, like you have this problem and I want to enter in and speak into your life. I want to help you. We reject that sort of community all too often rather than receiving and seeing how God might use that. So how well do you know yourself? Community begins to reveal in our lives what's going on. I'm just going to scratch the surface on these couple of things. I don't think I'm going to get through them all. Why do we fear people? Now, as a pastor, um, I get to have lots of meetings, some exciting, some fun. Uh, In the last few months, a lot of my meetings have gone like this. We were a little scared to sit down and talk with you. And I went, me too. Wow, what's going on here? All right, well, well, maybe I thought you were thinking. I'm like, yeah, maybe I thought you were thinking as well. And people so often come into situations with this fear of man. And if you know me or get to know me, I hope there's nothing that exudes from me other than some sort of kindness and love and just showing that I care. And I will admit I'm human and I fail and I mess up in situations. So I'm not going to take that portion out of who I am. But I sit there and go, man, you should have just told me. Like, yeah, whatever you want to talk about, let's talk. But we all have this fear. Why? Those three things. We fear people will expose, humiliate, or shame us. That's the first thing. Two, we fear people will reject, ridicule, or despise us. And three, We fear people because they can harm us. And that fear creates in us something that we then give other people the power and right to tell us what to feel, to think, and to do. This is the problem of the fear of man. It does two things. At its core, it's idolatry of others. Idolatry of others. Now, that might seem strange. You know, so often we think of idolatry as just ancients dancing around a golden calf like Israel did. Or we think of, oh, yeah, idolatry is greed or money or these other things, maybe in more of a modern context. We have a very tough time actually saying idolatry can be fear of man or it can be people. Associating idolatry with your kids, with a spouse, with people at work. It's often far from our minds, but it's rooted in who we are. As image bearers, we need to mirror an image. That's just how we've been created. That is to imiflect, excuse me, I was going to make up a new word. Imitate, imiflect, right? That's the new word. Imitate, reflect, 
all right? Be like. We're so prone to do this with people. Growing up in the mid to late 80s, early 90s, there is a commercial, I want to be like Mike. So I got Wheaties and I drank Gatorade. And look, I ain't like Mike at all. I could, well, I dunked once in a summer league game and it was lucky, okay? It was like a putback off the, off the rim. So it didn't count. We have this desire to be like, to image other people. It's intrinsic, created within us. We're going to image somebody. We're going to emulate something. And originally, there's this idea that we are to be the image bearers of Yahweh, of God. And in Christ, that's what's remaking us and who he's turning us into to be this mirror that was shattered, that's put back together. But in fear of man, we have idolatry of others, and we begin to image them, and there's a breakdown that happens in that. The problem with it is that we worship the creature rather than the creator, one, Romans one twenty-five, and they don't deserve our worship. They're worshiped because we believe they have power to give us something to bless us. Look, this is all idolatry. We serve money because we believe it'll give us something in return to bless us. We serve sex and sexuality. We serve people because we think they are going to satisfy us. But what ultimately happens is when we do that, we worship them, bow down to them, and they begin to own us. You want people to think you're great or you're like Mike. You need something from others, and as a result, you're in bondage and you're controlled by them. We deem their opinions and thoughts more important than God's thoughts, and that's what's ultimately wrong with the fear of man. It's a worship problem, exchanging the worship of God for the worship of men. And like Herod, no matter the cost, or like Pilate, no matter the cost, the crowds get louder, crucify, crucify, crucify. What wrong is with this man? I see nothing. I should let him go. There is an internal battle happening in that story with Pilate that we'll look at in probably five or six months from now, in which he knows what he should be doing, but he doesn't do it. It's a worship problem. This powerful official having the ability in his mind to give and take life, which really shows the supreme position over others. And it's completely shrunk down to a handful of people crying, crucify and kill him. Outwardly, it looks like we're making these decisions, but people are confined to the thoughts and opinions of pleasing those around them. Trapped to making decisions that will only bring comfort bound to the cries of people, not fear. Excuse me, not free people at that point. Fear of man is idolatry because it places others where only God should be. Now, next, and this is probably a whole other sermon. I'm gonna, I'm gonna do what I can. Beyond idolatry of others, it's enslaving. It's enslaving. We fear people because they can expose or shame us. Look, my wife would just kill for love if every time we went to a wedding, I would actually get on the dance floor. There's a reason I don't do that. It's called this like six foot one rigid frame. I look like an idiot, okay? So instead of having a good time with my wife, I sit on the sidelines, shoot the breeze with others, and duck out. Why? 
Because when I'm sitting, I'm watching all the idiots dancing. <laughs> like, I don't want to look like them. What is that? It's shame. It's fear. I don't want to look like them. I don't want to be humiliated. When did this first come on the scene? Very, very early. Genesis chapter 3, verse 7 was the first debut of the fear of people. After they partook of that fruit, really this disobedience to God, not only were they fearful of God himself having been exposed in that moment of this shame that's come upon us, they looked at one another, and previously they had just been in the garden and naked. It was awesome. It was great. It was the honeymoon stage for a long time. And now all of a sudden they're like, something different about you. And it was shame after they rebelled against God. Their eyes were open. They were exposed, vulnerable, and desperate in need of covering or protection under the gaze of a holy God as well as one another. They could see each other's disgrace and then people became a threat. That's what they could see. I fear people because they can expose me. I fear people because they can shame me and I will allow their perceived opinions to dominate my life. The world talks about this in terms of self-esteem and low self-esteem and that's really the pop cultural reference that gets used. That only discusses and addresses our problem between one another or maybe even ourselves, but it never introduces the shame that we've received because of our sin and where we're in relationship with God. Therefore, we can never get to the right solution of our problems, as we'll look at next week with fear of God. It brings in the bad news without the good news. Shame. Shame is why we fear people. Two, we fear people because they'll reject me. Let me give just a definition of this idea of reject. People withhold acceptance, love, significance that we want from them, as a result, we feel worthless. It's this idea, if I put myself out there, will you love me back? And it can be that uh, 500 other people love me or like me, but really what I'm asking is, will the people I think that will be beneficial to me, maybe influential in my life, will they receive me? Will they love me? If you're a fan of The Office, this is Michael Scott's character to a T. He's worshiped by Dwight, loved by Dwight. He could hang out with him every day. But who does he really want love and acceptance from? Jim, Pam, Ryan. I mean, you can go down the list of people that he's saying, it's not good enough unless it's from you. And he fears rejection. This is how people live because we want the praises of man over the praises of God. And it's got to be the right people. Jesus says in John 5, 44, how can you believe if you accept praise one from another, yet make no effort to obtain the praise that comes from the only God? We live under the sense of pure pressure. Fear of man is a real struggle. It's a real struggle for me. It might take several sessions with Lori Coulter to get to the bottom of fear of man in my life. But the short list is I can value people their opinions, and their thoughts in an unhealthy way to a degree in which it actually impacts, affects my life. Anybody else there? Maybe, maybe not. Maybe it's embarrassing to admit. That's fear of man. Right there. Right there. Just live in it. Okay? My fear over the, especially the last three months as a pastor in our church through the things that we've had to wrestle through with decisions being made concerning 
governmental overreach and COVID and all the rest is that every one of our decisions would have a reaction to the decision that we made. And so I would lose sleep over this. I'd endlessly talk to my wife about, oh my goodness, what if this happens and what if that happens and how are they going to respond? And in a world that there's been so much uncertainty in the world, in our country, in our town, in the church, and in our local church, where there's been so much fighting and division and article sent and opinions, fear of man has controlled, dominated, and ruled me. I'm just going to be honest with you guys. There wasn't a night I didn't sit down when these things came our way where I didn't think about somebody in this church and how they may or may not respond, that then it wouldn't wake me up at 4 a.m. You can have, my new get-up time is between 4.30 and 4.45. That's not who I am normally because of fear of man. And there's this fear, and you probably had no idea nor desire that your opinions, thoughts, considerations towards me would affect me that way. That's not your problem. That's my problem. That's fear of man. Fear of man prevents us from saying what should be said or it causes us to speak when we shouldn't speak. I'm going to lay a few things out clearly and boldly. And then we're going to wrap up with a few other things. First of all, clearly, I love you. This gets all serious, right? I'm staying here at Redeemers in Redmond, right? I'm just going to like put pin in that and tell you that. I love being here. It's been difficult. It's been hard. It has been a financial roller coaster the last seven months. Actually, the last almost eight years, like financially, we're like, woo. And as you saw last week, we were like, yeah, right? There's just the stuff that goes on in running a church. I love you. I want to stay here and preach and teach, be your pastor, hear your stories, pray for you. So if you like me, great. If you don't, there's a ton of churches I'll recommend. I'm here, okay? I'm just going to share with you now. Yes, there's been lots of ups and downs emotionally with the government, with ourselves, and people coming and going. People have moved away from here. They hate Oregon now. That also means a lot of people who like Oregon and maybe don't think alike, they've moved here. There are new neighbors. We get to love and care and witness to them, much like the early Christians in the Roman Empire who were the minority in their places. Love Jesus well. Love your neighbors well. Find it as an opportunity to share the gospel, not as a way to further the divide between us and others. Right? Some others have left. There's been tears cried. There's been decisions made that people didn't like. I get it. I can acknowledge that. But we as a church, we're going to move forward. It's the only direction for us. And I believe good things lie ahead. In moving forward, you should know something small that has changed in my life. Over the last six weeks, I went out and got a real estate license. Here's the reason why. When financial woes hit us, I still want to pastor you. I don't want to care if we dip $30,000 and we can't make budget and have to cut somebody. I don't know what this looks like in the future. I don't know if it'll bring in enough income to just simply subsidize it all or one or two homes a year or none. I have no idea. All I know is I spent a lot of time with Jesus this last year. And every time I asked him if I could leave for, like, Texas, he said no. (laughs) Where I didn't have to deal with so many of the problems 
that have been caused in even our church because of what some people might celebrate and praise as good decisions, what some people might sell or, excuse me, be angry and upset about bad decisions. And I just thought, Lord, what do you want me to do? It's like, Brett, you've always kind of done this side thing, flipping homes here and there. Why not? Right? I fretted over telling you guys. I had three elders meetings where I talked to Joel and Michael for an hour on how to tell you all. <laughs> it's fear of man. It's fear of man. What I'm fearful of is that you heard the wrong thing this morning. No, Brett is not going anywhere. Yes, I will continue to teach the scriptures three times a month. Love having the help that's come alongside of me with Michael and Carson. In fact, without that, I'd have been out of here by now. They have lifted up my arms. They have carried me through some tough times. And I thank God every day for my friend Michael who has come alongside of me and pastored with me here. Praise Jesus for him. He has done a fantastic and wonderful job. I want you guys to know that. And I want you to know where I'm at. So if I ever get lucky enough to have my face on a sign, you know why, okay? That's why. I'm not leaving. I'm here. I love you guys. So like really two things outside of my family and God I love. It's theology and real estate. It's all I talk about with people, okay? Just makes sense for my family, for my life. Now, we all struggle with fear of man. I would love to talk about this last one, but I just want to ask you guys a few questions instead. How do I know if I have a fear of man problem? If you constantly worry about what people think. I didn't wear a shirt this morning because I was worried I wore it last week, and you guys would all know. (laughs) Okay, I love that one. My old pastor used to say, don't worry about what others think about you because they're probably not. (laughs) Love it, love it. If you make decisions based on how you respond to others, and that's where I live at. If you make decisions based, excuse me, on how others will respond to you. If I do this, are they going to respond that way? I can't make firm decisions because of how people might react. That's fear of man. The idea that people might reject me, that's fear of man. Do you seek the praise of others and not giving praise to God? That's fear of man. Are you second-guessing decisions because of what others might think? I'm not talking about loving, caring, esteeming others above yourself. That's biblical. I'm talking about letting others rule and determine your decisions because you give them the power in your life to do that rather than just coming under God. Are there sins you'd confess to God but not people? Finally, are you more concerned with looking stupid, me on the dance floor, there's your image, than we are acting sinfully, fear of God. There's a couple of things. When we fear God and not man, it doesn't mean we get to be insensitive towards man at that point. Like, I don't have to fear you. I don't have to listen to you. I don't have to do what you tell me to do. I don't have to come underneath of you. That's not what I'm saying here. Philippians 2, 3, and 4 says, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. We are to esteem others above ourselves, to love, to care, but not to be a slave to them. Luther says it perfectly. As a Christian, a Christian man, being man, woman, right? A Christian man is the most free Lord of all and subject to none. Woo! Love it. A Christian man is the most dutiful servant of all and subject to everyone. That's not American. No, but he's getting at the heart of Jesus. You're free. You're free in Christ. 
but you're free to come underneath and still esteem, love, and serve others well. That is the tension we live in. Too many people seek from people what they cannot get and ignore what God has freely offered them. Unconditional, inexhaustible love. Next week, we're going to look at fear of God. And we're going to see how this all ties together. Until then, let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your love, your kindness, your truth. God, we praise you that you're with us as we walk in you. May we fear you. May we sing our fears. May we pray our fears. May we cry out to you that you've conquered and you are holy. And what shall we fear what men can do unto us? You are on our side and with us. So we praise your name in Jesus' name. Amen.